Hi there and welcome to Question Period on this Sunday, January 22nd. I'm Vashi Capellos. Today, where are the tanks? The world must not hesitate today and ever. Ukraine pleads for tanks from allies to help it regain territory from Russia, but Germany stands in the way. Canada's Defence Minister Anita Anand is here. Then we'll speak to former CIA Director, retired General David Petraeus. Plus, almost a done deal. There has been uh, significant progress uh, over the last few weeks. The feds and the provinces are weeks away from signing a huge healthcare deal. Is there anything, though, that can derail crossing the finish line? We'll ask New Brunswick's Premier, Blaine Higgs. Plus, healthcare is on the agenda at this week's federal cabinet retreat, and so is a possible election. Our Sunday strategy session is here to weigh in on what to expect coming up. Let's start today with Ukraine's push for more help from allies, including Canada. President Vladimir Zelensky's call for battle tanks is still unanswered following a meeting of defense ministers late last week. Germany manufactures those Leopard 2 tanks and has to give the green light for them to be exported from any country. And so far, that isn't happening. We don't fear anything. We have just responsibility for our population in Germany and in Europe. And we have to balance all the pros and contras before we decide things like that, just like that. This is a crucial moment. Russia is regrouping, recruiting, and trying to re-equip. This is not a moment to slow down. It's a time to dig deeper. Canada's Defence Minister Anita Anand was at the meeting of Defence Ministers and is with us from Frankfurt, Germany. Hi, Minister. Thanks so much for making time for our program. I really appreciate it. I just wanted to start off on the question of Germany giving the green light to those, the export of those tanks. What is your understanding of why they haven't yet done so? Just before I get to that, Vashi, I wanted to mention that I was in Kyiv, Ukraine this week, and I saw the horrors and devastation of an illegal and unjustifiable invasion of Ukraine. And it is more important now than ever for us as allies to continue to be united. And that's exactly what we are around the table in Ramstein today as more than 50 countries very united. On the question of the tanks that you asked about, I will reiterate that as countries, we are all putting on the table the aid that we can provide. And there is a range of capabilities that is discussed. Uh, we talk about air defense systems. We talk about armored vehicles. We talk about munitions, multiple different types of ammunition as well. And so it is a very complex and multifaceted uh, discussion, which involves numerous capabilities, not just one capability that you mentioned in your question. Uh, and certainly I take that point. We've covered the other uh, capabilities, the other offers from Canada extensively. I'm just trying to ascertain on behalf of Canadians who are listening, what your sense is as someone who is around that table of why we heard what we did here from the German, from your counterpart in Germany, which is that they aren't ready yet to give the, the green light to the export of those tanks. But what can you share about your understanding of, of why that is? And do you anticipate it will change? 
Well, let's start off by saying this is Minister Pistorius's third day on the job as defense minister, and it was wonderful to meet him. He is most definitely uh, unified with the NATO alliance, as well as the broader partnership around the table. And he uh, mentioned that he has not made a decision as of yet. But Germany's contributions have continued to be substantial. And partners around the table were roundly thanked by Ukraine, by Minister Resnikov and his team for continuing to ensure that we are getting multiple different types of weapon systems into the hands of the Ukrainian army. And for Canada's part, that has included uh, anti-tank weapon systems, it has included munitions, it has included heavy artillery, the M777s, winter clothing, and of course the armored vehicles uh, that I've announced in the past and now 200 more this week. Uh, we welcome all different types of aid being provided and that's exactly what we are seeing from our allies across the board. So, so from your perspective then, and, and again, we have covered extensively all the Canadian announcements, more than $1 billion of military, $1 billion rather, of military aid. But, but from your perspective, what I heard from Ukrainian officials and ones that I've interviewed too is that they need those tanks. That is the priority for them going forward. Uh, did, did, are you disappointed that Germany hasn't given the green light? And if they do, is Canada prepared to send some? We work as a group. We are united and as each country around the table uh, is able to make its own decisions. And that's, in fact, what has continued to occur. And that's the case with Canada, too. Uh, we will continue to provide whatever aid we can in the short and the long term so that Ukraine has uh, full faith in our continued support. And that's one of the reasons I went to Kyiv this week was to ensure that we were providing whatever aid we can. We make armored vehicles in Canada. That is why we need to continue to leverage Canadian industry for the benefit of the broader effort to support Ukraine. Um, and individual jurisdictions, individual countries will make their own decisions. The UK is sending tanks, for example. But, but in the case of the tanks we have, we require Germany to allow for the export of them. My understanding is we have about 82, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, of the Leopard 2s. If that green light is given, again, I'll ask you directly, is Canada willing to provide tanks should Ukraine ask for them? I have no news to share today on this, Vashi. The number 82 is uh, correct, and some of those are serviceable and others are not in the same uh, condition as that. And so, again, uh, we're taking this and uh, our aid to Ukraine step by step. We're engaging industry. We are examining all options. That's why we were able to purchase the NASAM system from the United States, because wherever we can, we are looking to ensure that we are doing our very best for Ukraine and the 1.4 million Ukrainians uh, that are here in Canada. I know you're running out of time and your time is very limited. Just one final question, if I could, Minister. Uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has said that the export of those tanks could further provoke uh, Vladimir Putin. Do you share that view? I believe that we need to make sure we're doing whatever we can to support Ukraine. If that means that we will spend over a billion dollars in military aid, that's what we will do. Our view is that Ukraine needs to win. And Putin would like 
our unity to fray. But in fact, that's not the case. We left Ramstein today more united than ever. We as defense ministers will meet again in Brussels in mid-February and carry on this discussion and carry on the unity and the collaboration that has led us to this place where we see Minister Resnikov thanking us for the aid that we're providing and where we are committing to provide even more aid so that Ukraine has what it needs to fight and win this war. But, but that doesn't specifically answer the question of whether supplying tanks to Ukraine would provoke Vladimir Putin. Do, do you think that's the case? Well, Vashi, I don't know what Vladimir Putin is thinking on any given day. All I do know is that we need to do whatever we can to assist Ukraine in its fight for sovereignty and democracy, as well as for the benefit of the rules-based international order that has kept us all safe since the end of the Second World War. And that's why Ukraine's fight for its democracy is also a fight for democracy writ large. And Canada stands 100% behind Ukraine for those reasons. Okay, Minister, I'll leave it there. Safe travels. Thank you. Canada's Defence Minister Anita Anand there. Let's get more perspective on this push for tanks from former CIA Director, retired General David Petraeus. Hi, General Petraeus. Real pleasure to welcome you uh, to our program. Thanks for making the time. Thank you, Vashi. I, I wanted to get your perspective on whether or not you're surprised that Germany did not end up making a decision yet on giving the green light for countries to export those Leopard 2 tanks. There was some anticipation that that decision could come with the meeting of defense ministers, and it didn't. Does that surprise you at all? Uh, a bit, but not entirely. There's been enormous angst about this in Germany, as you know. There's been a desire that the U.S. would go first, that we would give a modest number of uh, M1A2 Abrams tanks, which candidly are 10 tons heavier, much tougher on the roads and bridges, uh, much more difficult to maintain. It's basically a jet turbine instead of a diesel engine and so forth. And so there are understandable reasons why the U.S. is a bit reluctant to provide them, although, frankly, if that was the key to me to unlocking, uh, the Leopard 2 approval, not just from Germany, of course, but also for Germany to allow others who have bought their Leopard 2 tanks, like Poland, mm -hmm. and want to give them to Ukraine to allow them to do so as well. But my sense is that out of this meeting, which of course conveyed an extraordinary amount of additional arms, ammunition, and materiel to Ukraine, 2.5 billion just from the United States alone, which will take us up to I think approaching 27 billion, depending on where you begin counting. I think that's with the beginning of the invasion last year. So a staggering additional commitment and staggering additional unity with this exception on the tanks. But my sense is that this will be sorted out literally in days, if not a week or so, as was indicated by the German defense minister. And the fact that they're allowing the Poles to begin training the Ukrainians on Leopard 2 tanks while the decision is firmed up, uh, I think is a good indicator. And is the desire for that unity at all about kind of inoculating itself from however Putin decides to interpret this or any escalation on Russia's part? I suspect that's a big factor in it. There may be other issues. And of course, I can't speak about the domestic politics in each of the countries. Uh, but again, I think altogether, those are the major factors. Um, but let's remember that Putin and uh, his defense minister and others have repeatedly uh, rattled the nuclear saber, made threats that all of which have proved hollow at the end of the day. But the fact is that Russia 
have made endless threats. They have established numerous red lines. They've all been crossed and nothing has materialized. And we are at a pivotal moment here. The battle lines have been quite static. If anything, Russia has had incremental, very costly incremental gains uh, in recent months. Both countries are poised for offensives in the spring. We need to do everything we can to ensure that Ukraine is successful in their counteroffensive this spring and can liberate more of the country as they did last fall. Well, that's exactly what I wanted to ask you, General Petraeus, but before I let you go, because Secretary Austin spoke about that counteroffensive and the timeline before this spring. What are you anticipating? Will it be about Ukraine, for example, regaining some territory? Or, or what is the objective in that counteroffensive from where you sit at this point? Well, certainly it's to liberate more territory. Keep in mind that at the end of the day, what we need to uh, help them achieve uh, is to convey to Russia that this is uh, unsustainable. Uh, Vladimir Putin has to come to recognize that just as the USSR couldn't sustain its operations in Afghanistan a number of decades ago, by the way, they've already lost nine times the soldiers in 11 months in Ukraine that they lost in more than nine years of combat in Afghanistan. And we have to help that by tightening the economic, financial, and personal sanctions and export controls on Russia so that they bite even more, noting that Russia is perhaps the, the ideal country from a perspective of being able to circumvent sanctions because they have so much natural gas, oil, coal, and other minerals that others in the world are willing still to buy. But we've got to hasten that moment when he realizes this is unsustainable and when he is willing to enter into negotiations uh, and Ukraine at that point in time, and who knows where the battle lines will be, hopefully they've regained every bit of their territory. But at some point, Ukraine also will need a negotiated resolution so that the missiles and other uh, drones and other strikes on their civilian infrastructure and innocent civilians stop so that there's a Marshall Plan to help them reconstruct the battered economy and that infrastructure, and above all, that they get an ironclad security guarantee, whether it is NATO membership, if that's possible, if not a US-led uh, coalition of the willing, because that will be essential. That'll be the foundation on which this reconstruction effort will build. Okay, I'll leave it there. Really appreciate your analysis, General Petraeus. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. When we come back, done deal. After months of deadlock, provinces and Ottawa are reportedly weeks away from signing a healthcare funding deal. What are provinces willing to agree to for more money? We'll ask you Brunswick's Premier Blaine Higgs next. Stay with us. First, I would like to recognize that uh, there has been uh, significant progress uh, over the last few weeks. Uh, I'm positive and optimistic as the Prime Minister is also as he has signaled earlier uh, this week. And that's because we have seen a shift uh, uh, towards a, f a focus on what matters to Canadians, which are results, results for uh, patients and, and health care workers. While Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos signaled this week the feds may be getting closer to a health care transfer deal with the provinces, some premiers have also said they may be willing to accept some of the federal government's conditions on the funds. The provinces have long been calling for the federal government to increase its share of health care funding from 22 to 35 percent. So 
How close to a deal are they and what strings are the premiers willing to accept to get more money? Joining me now, New Brunswick's Premier, Blaine Higgs. Hi, Premier Higgs. Good to see you. Nice to be here, Vassie. Premier, is a deal with the federal government on health care weeks away from your view? I believe it is. You know, it's kind of exciting after a long, uh, a long process, but it has ramped up uh, significantly in the last uh, few weeks, few months. So it's encouraging. Uh, tell me why things have ramped up from your perspective. Well, I think that, um, you know, to, to it, provincially here, I've said it, you know, many times that, you know, we'll put whatever money is necessary in health care, but we want to see it actually get results for patients and for citizens. You know, and I've said that publicly, you know, um, on different um, opportunities, maybe talking to you or others um, as well. Uh, so I think that the, the population and the, uh, the citizens of the country really feel that our healthcare system needs to ensure that money being spent is getting results because we know it's challenged in every province. So I, I think the public sentiment is, is clear that there, there needs to be improvements. And uh, I think the federal position in this case has been um, you know, solid that we need to tie outcomes to, uh, to actual uh, money being spent. And so what's, um, I'm a, oh, pardon me, go ahead. Well, I'm just saying I, I believe in that because I, I, I have been, you know, kind of saying the same thing provincially as we look at where we can make improvements in the system. So can you tell Canadians watching today uh, and people in your province too, what, what specific outcomes is the federal government asking the money be tied to? What can you tell us about that? Well, I, actually, I can't give any specifics in that regard because at this point, what I understand is there's going to be, a, you know, basically a, a, a funding formula tied to sharing of information. And then I think from that, uh, a process in order to determine uh, what areas of improvement need to be required in different provinces. So, so I would gather from that particular discussion that, uh, okay, so we'll, we'll share information and we'd pick some maybe key indicators, like, like um, how, many, how many citizens are without a family doctor or, or without access to primary care in each province? What's the status of critical surgeries or critical treatment? And, and so you'd go over to go through a number of, of key areas and say, okay, how does that look across the country? And where do we see major areas that are, are not falling within uh, provincial standard or Canadian standard? And, and that would likely end up being tied to the, the improvement. And, and we would be left to find the best way to achieve that. But I think to say it's, uh, it's tied to an actual result is, is a good thing. And is it your understanding, Premier, that it will be a long-term agreement for 10 years? Oh, I, we're counting on it because I think that the whole fundamental principle of this was it can't be just one-off um, situation because our health care is, is growing in cost and it's not a one-off situation. It, it, it's as ongoing expenses in health care. So very much this needs to be a continuous uh, funding arrangement. And, you know, maybe maybe some of the metrics would change over time. If you reach the standards in one area, then it goes to another area and there may be an ongoing requirement to, to, uh, to demonstrate that it's getting results. Um, and that's fine. Um, I think a continuous improvement program is important in any field. So, um, so I, 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 but it, it needs to be a funding formula that, that it, we can count on and is, is an ongoing uh, contribution from the federal government. As far as the money is concerned, Premier, I had uh, a federal minister from your neck of the woods, uh, Minister Dominic LeBlanc, on uh, my program Power Play this week, and I asked him, are you coming to the table with the $28 billion that the provinces ha ha have asked for? I, I see you smiling there because he, he did not give me, to, to no one's no. surprise, a, a direct response. Is it your sense, like what is your sense on the amount of money that the federal government will come to the table with? Well, it, it isn't my sense that they'll come with a full amount, let's put it that way. 
but between where we are and where we've asked, um, um, there, there's, a, there's a number there somewhere, and, and I, I would say that Administrator LeBlanc likely knows that number a lot more than I do, but I'm not surprised he didn't share it. The, the federal government in the past, the Prime Minister specifically actually, has been uh, critical of your government for asking for more money from the federal government to invest in health care. Well, you've used, uh, well, you've accepted sort of less revenue vis-a-vis uh, -vis tax cuts to higher income earners in your province. Do they have a point? Well, I think the, the point is this, that, that I've said I'll put money in health care where it gets result, and I have not restricted that in any way. Um, but the, the, to for say, well, uh, to make a statement, I've just spent more money in healthcare. That that doesn't change anything if the improvements aren't there. And I think that's the same argument the federal government are using. The whole discussion around healthcare is a joint responsibility between the federal government and the provincial government. And 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 whether I uh, uh, other aspects of the economy and whether I can attract more people here by having tax tax uh, brackets that are fair and equitable. I think you need to look at where we stand in, in our province in that regard because we were one of the highest tax jurisdictions, but, but we're moving away from that. And I want to track people here that certainly are professionals, like in the healthcare field, doctors, um, you know, that, that we need desperately. Well, we need to find ways to bring them here, and having the highest tax jurisdiction is, isn't one of them. But, but with respect, Premier, uh, you know, if, you're, if your focus on healthcare is investment only uh, a, a proportional to outcomes, I'm looking at some of the outcomes under your tenure, uh, you know, you promised back in t November of 2021 that by the second quarter of 2022-23, the list of New Brunswickers waiting for a doctor would be eliminated and replaced by the New Brunswick Primary Care Network. As of last November, the latest number I could find w was hovering between 69 and 74,000 people on that list. There were only 40,000 when you announced that it would be eliminated. So what you are investing currently isn't leading to the results likely that New Brunswickers are are hoping for, so maybe should you be investing more and maybe with uh, more strategic, you know, more strategic thought behind it uh, instead of giving rich people tax cuts? Well, uh, it, that is not a restriction on the investment in healthcare, what, what we've done on the tax side. However, what I would say in relation to the access to primary care, we've had a population increase in the province that's been unprecedented in, in the last two years, the greatest since the Confederation. Over 60,000 people, new people in the province. Our actual waiting list now, as I understand, is down, with that increase, is down around 50, 54,000. And, and we are continuing to drop that list. So you're correct. We did not meet the schedule that we'd hoped to eliminate it when, last fall as we did, but, but we are on a track now of, of a of declining wait list. And that same thing applies to a declining in critical surgeries and, and you know, whether it be hip and knee surgeries that we're moving from where we are in, in one parts of the of our health system at, at maybe two, two and a half years, and we're moving down to a year. And we can expedite that program by actually paying for more surgeries and actually having an expedited program to do that. We're doing it with cataracts surgeries, and we're, we've expedited that program. So, so coupled with the population increase, we are still putting wherever we can uh, more money in the system to get better results. And it's not limited uh, by any sort of tax reduction that we've put forward in the past. Okay, understood. Premier, I'll let you go. Thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome. Coming up after the break, is there anything that could derail that health care deal? Our Sunday strategy session is next. Kathleen Monk, Corey Tonike, and Tim Murphy are all here. Next. Ontarians will always access health care with their OHIP card never their credit card.
it is one of the primary responsibilities of the federal government in matters of healthcare delivery to ensure that the Canada Health Act is always respected. Doug Ford claims that you can use your health card to access services. When you go into a private clinic, the, the patient often gets convinced that they need to buy an, an extra service or needs to pay out of pocket for something else recommended by the clinic and they end up actually having to pay for care. That's the week that was in healthcare. Ontario Premier Doug Ford's plan to clear a surgical backlog through the use of private clinics ignited a political firestorm. But is it enough to derail a deal on healthcare funding between the provinces and the feds? Our Sunday strategy session is here to dig into that. Kathleen Monk was the director of communications to the late Jack Layton. Corey Tanaik was Ontario Premier Doug Ford's campaign manager and former director of communications for Prime Minister Stephen Harper. And Tim Murphy was the former chief of staff to Prime Minister Paul Martin. Hi, everybody. Hi there. Good to see Hi. you. Uh, Tim, hey. I'm going to start with you. Look, everybody is admitting that this thing is very close to the finish line. I know you've been around a, a table when this thing was negotiated almost a decade and two decades ago, I should say now. Um, is there anything from your viewpoint that could stop it from crossing the finish line? So I think it's always, there's always one premier here and there that has a holdout for something particular. And what actually was helpful when we negotiated was actually some of the other premiers were the people who helped get that premier over the finish line. And then the other aspect of it is Quebec always is its own special case and how you accommodate national priorities among the other premiers with what Quebec wants to do is always a wrinkle in these things. Uh, usually, you know, we defined it as asymmetrical uh, federalism to accommodate that and came up with a Quebec-specific deal. And so I suspect getting uh, that right is one of the things that's finalizing it. Plus, you know, you've got to do the assessment of the fiscal impact of whatever the increase to the Canada health transfer is going to be and the degree to which you allocate specific funds to health priorities that the, the Liberal government wants to focus on, especially now in the context of this developing debate about the proper role of private versus public delivery in the healthcare system. Yeah, that, I actually want to pick up on that, Corey, because part of what's feeding into that debate is the announcement uh, from Ontario Premier Doug Ford to address the surgical backlog. Uh, they're going to funnel mo more of those surgeries through clinics, private clinics that will deliver that privately but be paid for kind of the regular way through the, through the taxpayer. Um, lots of questions to the Prime Minister and his Health Minister this week about whether that would be tied in any way to the Canada Health Transfer. I had Dominic LeBlanc on the program. He didn't seem to want to go there at all, in fact. Mm -hmm. he, he was sort of saying, look, the Premier's assuring me this complies with the Canada Health Act. I don't have a reason not to believe him. Does, does that kind of give you the sense that that won't be part of this? Well, I think it'd be very difficult for the federal government to tie those kinds of strings to any kind of deal because private delivery exists in every province and uh, there's been more of it over time, but it's, there's nothing new about any of this. Like the, the first phase of the Ontario plan is to increase the number of uh, uh, surgeries done for cataracts uh, 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 through uh, through a private delivery system, uh, and that was brought in by uh, that rabid right winger Kathleen Wynne. So, uh, I you know there's nothing new about any of this. There's some people who are kind of playing a, a political game because you know as soon as you say the word private, everyone clutches their pearls. Uh, but there's nothing there's nothing non-compliant with the Canada Health Act uh, to have 
a private clinic uh, uh, delivering uh, public health care. This happens in every other province. You do see, though, Minister Duclos, for example, who kind of seems to be the one, the only one in the federal government throwing cold water on any of this stuff when it has to do with health care, mm -hmm. saying, well, I acknowledge there are these concerns, but, but overall, Kathleen, it, it doesn't seem like, at least at this juncture, in the form it's being presented, I'll, I'll sort of add the caveat, Alberta might present it in a different form, yeah. but in the current form as presented, that the Prime Minister has any interest in like making this the stumbling block. I don't know, what's your sense? On the private health care, he doesn't want to make it the stumbling block to getting to a deal. He wants to get to a deal soon, ideally in February, before his own federal budget comes to pass. And that's what the provinces want too. But the problem is that the, the Prime Minister has sidestepped the question of for-profit health care. Listen, we all know that millions of people are without uh, a primary health care doctor. There are long waits for surgeries, and there have been deaths in ERs recently. But what we know, so we know this has to fix. The status quo is not going to work. But the problem is the evidence and the focus on for-profit health care isn't going to necessarily help it. It shouldn't just be we've got to move to a private system. And the fact is that strategically, if you're looking at this question, Justin Trudeau not speaking out against the for-profit clinics opens up a whole new left flank for the New Democrats. The Prime Minister has consistently outflanked in some ways the Democrats for the last seven years, right? Since the 2015 election. He, he was more progressive than Thomas Mulcair. Right. He, he said, yes, we should run deficits. He, he was more left than New Democrats were. But if he is failing to stand up on the issue of for-profit clinics and failing to stop them, then New Democrats have a real opportunity to exploit that and to speak to Canadians who are deeply, deeply concerned about moving to a for-profit model. So let me jump off that, Tim, and ask you, do, do you perceive that as a vulnerability uh, for the Trudeau government where the left flank is concerned? Or do you, do you think he ha is reading some, some other kind of number or some other sense of the room, has another sense of the room that ha has uh, fed into that calculation? So I think it actually has a bit of both in it. I think there is... Uh, a potential for the issue to run away, mostly because a lot of Canadians actually don't understand the point Corey made, which was there's actually a ton of del private delivery in the system already. Frankly, doctors are private deliverers of health care. Um, they're just universally paid, which is the fundamental characteristic of the system. But because of that confusion, there can be some degree of uh, fear-mongering around the issue that can create political opportunity. That being said, I think what Doug Ford is playing on and has created room for is the notion at the end of the day that there's a lot of Canadians with impatience for just an answer. And to be honest with you, a fight over cataract surgery delivery mechanisms is a total distraction from the real problem in healthcare, which is we've got crowded emergency rooms, canceled important, you know, cancer, heart care, et cetera, surgeries. And if I'm the federal government, I'm focusing on driving towards a solution for that that can speak to the real issues that people are facing. And so I think you can probably find your way through politically to not being outflanked in the issue on, the, on a kind of a fake issue of private health care. Okay, and Corey, my, my next question comes out of that on the bigger, bigger kind of picture about the feds, and that is how much money they end up coming to the table with. Because what the province are, provinces are asking for is a huge jump, right? They, they say the feds only pay 22% versus the 35 they want to say see rather as a share of total health care costs. And that, that amounts to like $28 billion a year if they were to fulfill the total ask. Do you think that they're going to come to the table with that much money? 
No, I don't. <clears throat> I don't think they'll come. You know, any they'll be under half of what the premiers are looking at. Is is what it sort of looks like. Okay. Uh, but you know, if somebody's going to, if you're Ontario, come in and give you a check for you know seventy billion dollars, there's really only one answer that uh, is uh, acceptable to the public, which is thank you. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> like, it's a lot of money, irrespective yeah. of that. Uh, but like, I, I I think premiers will continue to come back for for more because you know these programs were as they were originally conceived 50-50 uh, programs and you know they're you know uh, they're not anymore so you know 78 22 pr uh, programs now so it, wow. you know this is you know there is going to the, be uh, the feds don't agree with that I'll, well, I'll point out I hear Tim Mahoney, a, I know the yeah. feds have a different well, calculation but, because but, but, of tax points transferred as well as side deals sure but yeah. sure they, but I know they, they do but like I guarantee you provinces and you know when uh, uh, and it's 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 irrespective of the political stripe of the premier or, or over time premiers will always be looking for more uh, assistance uh, with uh, with healthcare because the costs continue to escalate and it's you know it, it's essentially half of every provincial budget is healthcare. It's not like uh, there's a lot of other things going on in provinces that they're spending money on. So uh, you know I, I don't think there's going to be a big conflict. I think this is going to be uh, you know uh, a less dramatic moment in, yeah. in our federation than you'd think. Uh, the, the priorities that the, the federal government has been talking about align very well with what the provinces are spending on right now. It's more money for home care, more money for long-term care, more money for nursing. Uh, so, you know, uh, I, I would agree with Tim to an extent that the, the, this whole notion of private delivery is, is, is a bit of a red herring. Uh, the, the major spend and the major news coming out of this is going to be in those other areas. The other one we haven't talked about is transparency and, and reporting right, and data. reporting metrics. Mm -hmm. I think uh, I think you're going to see a lot of provinces who are doing better on health care are going to be asking for more of that, not less, uh, because it makes them look good. And uh, there are other provinces that are going to want less transparency because their systems uh, on a comparative basis are struggling more. Okay. So I, I think that, that'll be an interesting dynamic that I'll be watching. I've got to pause yeah. for two minutes, but the Sunday strategy session is sticking around. Up next, we're going to talk about what Cabinet is talking about next week. Healthcare is on the agenda, so, is, so are rather a lot of other things. We're back in just a moment with the Sunday strategy session here on Question Period. Welcome back to Question Period on this Sunday. I'm here with the Sunday Strategy Session. Kathleen Monk, Corey Tonight, and Tim Murphy. Kathleen, we're talking now about the Cabinet Retreat happening this week in Hamilton, Ontario. We were just speaking about health care. I know that's part of the agenda. Sure. If the Trudeau government said, hey, Kathleen, come on down, tell us what our political priority should be between now and the budget. What would you tell them? I would say it doesn't matter what your priorities are internally because, frankly, all Canadians care about right now is health care. A lot of thought and planning goes into caucus retreat, cabinet retreat, locations where narrative framing around them. Uh, Justin Trudeau's choosing Hamilton, a battleground area. It's a progressive battleground, normally between New Democrats and, and Liberals, but also that whole media area covers you know, lots of three-way fights with Conservatives as well. So, so they're, they're trying to win back politically, get some political ground, but they want to talk about affordability. But the first question about everyone's minds uh, and reporters, for sure, who will be questioning there this week is going to be on health care. And that's going to be a problem because he's going to, Prime Minister Trudeau, like I said in the last segment, will have to actually be forced to answer the questions around the for, push for for-profit healthcare that Doug Ford is pushing for. We're hearing from Premier Daniel Smith as well. And so I, I think that part of his cabinet retreat, which is, you know, he wants to be around affordability. We're also going to get news from the bank governor on Wednesday of what the interest rate 
decision is, whether it's a hike or not, um, is really going to be overshadowed by just the health care crisis and, and the health care deal. Do you think that's true, Tim? Do you think uh, the government wants to talk about affordability but will be drowned out by health care questions? Well, I, I think actually it's, it's important to have a better understanding of what a cabinet retreat is about. You know, Kathleen was actually talking about sort of the, the public coverage of a retreat, which is only one aspect and frankly not even the most important aspect. They provide an opportunity for the government and the cabinet to focus on, you know, three things, which is what they're planning to do, what crises they see coming, and then, uh, you know, maybe a little time on politics too. So from a planning perspective, absolutely. You know, jobs, affordability, the economy has not gone away as an issue. They'll be talking about that in the setup to the budget. Obviously, health care will be an issue. And frankly, you know, uh, liberals should be happy to talk about health care. Uh, you know, it's better for a liberal government to talk about than bail conditions. Crises coming at them, they're going to have to talk about the potential threat of a public service strike out of the out of Ottawa and then politics I think they're gonna you know have to see where they're at in terms of how serious is the threat by uh, by Mr. Singh to pull the plug and where are they at in Polyev and uh, maybe this year should be an election year. Oh what do you oh. think what do you think Corey? <laughs> Let, let's take the politics part that's the third aspect of what Tim sure. was was uh, talking about there. Uh, in their assessment of the agreement with Mr. Singh, the confidence and supply agreement, uh, stacked up against the threat that Mr. Polyev might pose, what, what, what do you think they're thinking? I think if you're talking health care as a, as a Liberal Prime Minister, you're probably winning. Uh, I think if you're talking the economy and inflation and interest rates and, uh, and those sorts of issues, or as uh, Tim pointed out, things like bail conditions, uh, uh, you're winning as a Conservative. So uh, I, I think they're going to embrace talking about health care. I think that's, that's, uh, that's very safe political ground for them. Uh, I think they'll be looking, you know, not at, not at the, the macro numbers for, uh, for polling, but, but, you know, regional numbers really are, are what tell the tale. Um, uh, as Conservatives have, yeah. you know, in the last number of elections, been able to run up the score so much on the prairies that those national numbers are, are always uh, a little bit deceptive. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's a minority government. They, you know, we could end up in an election this year. It's, it's very possible. And I, I don't think, I'll make this prediction, I don't think it will be because of a breakdown in the supply agreement with, uh, with NDP. It'll be because the Prime Minister decides he wants to have an election, he'll go to the Governor General and call one, uh, which uh, we have uh, lots of precedents for uh, mm -hmm. if you look back to the Harper minorities. I sort of got that sense from Tim, too, that he didn't think it was, I could be wrong, and Tim, you can correct me in a second, that he didn't think it was also going to be because of the NDP pulling out of that deal, yeah. that maybe the Liberals want this year to be an election year. Your, your assessment, Kathleen, your view on whether Mr. Singh is, you know, going to make good on a threat at any point to, to withdraw from that agreement, or whether you see the Liberals rather deciding it's time to go? My money for a long time has been on that this, this CASA agreement will go at least till 2024, the beginning of 2024, if not even right up into 2025. So no, I don't think, as I said last week, I don't think that we're at the brinkmanship of election uh, cycle right now. And I think Corey's right. You know, if, if we go to an election, it'll be because Justin Trudeau pulls the plug and he sees that the conditions are right. But um, but right now, I think Jagmeet Singh is having an opportunity to push his agenda to get things like dental care, which are going to be in the next federal budget. Um, other other pushes that he's been doing, whether it's you know GST credit, all these other things. But also, he as I said previously, he has the opportunity to really draw a lot of Canadians to him with his message around 
public, nonprofit-delivered healthcare. New Democrats consistently have pulled very high on healthcare. It, always, they've got that in their DNA because of Tommy Douglas, because of lots of other previous leaders. So if he can open up this flank on the Liberals, if they're refusing to shut down some of these premiers that are pushing towards a for-profit model um, without make without the insurances in place, that it's not going to drain the public system either of nurses or of money. I think that is an opportunity gonna, for Jagmeet Singh. He's not going to pull. I mean, I asked him this week. He's not. He, he didn't say he's going to pull out over something like that. No, he won't no. pull out. No, yeah. but the, the whole idea is grow that voter universe, right. lock in those voters, identify himself, show voters that he's the one who's defending um, public, uh, nonprofit, universally delivered Medicare. Last quick word to you, Tim. If there's an election this year, is it the prime minister's decision or, or just Jagmeet Singh's? Well, I think at the end it's always the prime minister's decision unless there is a vote of confidence. I, I would <laughs> I shouldn't hope be more specific, that. yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, but that being said, I think, uh, you know, um, Jagmeet Singh is trying to look like he's tough, but he's kind of a toothless tiger on this. Um, you know, he'll try and So at the end, I think if we do go in an election, uh, it would be because the prime minister decided there was an issue or circumstance that made sense to go to the polls. Um, so I kind of, at the end of the day, agree with Kathleen. It's most likely we're not having an election. Uh, but you know what? Stockwell Day uh, is an important lesson for everyone. You know, Prime Minister uh, Kretchen went before Stockwell was ready, and it's not clear to me Pierre Polyev is ready. Oh, that's our, that's our topic for next week. I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> Thanks so much to our Sunday strategy session, Tim Murphy, Kathleen Monk, and Corey tonight. Coming up, more on that federal cabinet retreat and what to expect. The Scrum with Nick Nanos, Joyce Napier, and Sherelle Evelyn is here after a very quick break. Stay right there. Welcome back to Question Period. As you just heard from the Sunday strategy session, the federal cabinet is headed to Hamilton this week for a little retreat to talk about what they have to look ahead to and to help us understand what exactly that is. The Sunday Scrum is here. Joyce Napier, Sherelle Evelyn and Nick Nanos. Hi everyone. Good to Hello. see you. Uh, Nick, I'm going to start with you. Set the table for us if you could because you've done some no new polling. You have some new information for us about where things sit for the Liberals as they head into this retreat. Well, not so great for the start of 2023. You know, in the latest Nanos tracking, we have the Conservatives at 36, Liberals back at 28, NDP at 21. 36, remember that number, Vashi? Stephen Harper won a number of elections, minority governments at 36, and with the Liberals in the 20s, that's got to be very bad news. Those numbers are exceptionally bad for the Liberals in Battleground, Ontario. Probably explains why they're in Hamilton trying to cook up a new strategy. So right now, Liberals are back on their heels, and they have to break this trend line, or it'll be a rough ride in 2023. Let me just quickly follow up with you and ask, when did you see a move? Like, when did you see them, the Conservatives start to gain? The Conservatives started to gain in late December, and they've just been picking up momentum. You know, the interesting thing is people are worried about paying the bills. They're frustrated about health care, which probably explains what the Liberals are doing right now on the health care file. And it looks like they're pinning it on the Liberals and drifting to the New Democrats. Also to the Greens are up in the last uh, few weeks. Sherelle, what's your sense of what the Liberals are up against or what their focus will be going into this retreat? Right. I mean... On the grand kind of macro scale, things are should typically be good for a government if you're looking at things like the economy. Um, you know, it's people are talking about a recession, but we're not actually there unless you're you're getting into some of the really nitty gritty uh, details. Um, you know, employment still up. Uh, 
inflation starting to come back down mm -hmm. or it's at least starting to slow. However, you have things like mortgage interest rates uh, going up, so mortgages and, and ho other housing costs are going up. Food is still expensive. Healthcare is crumbling. So there's all these things that the Liberals want, would want to say, hey, we are doing, whatever we're doing is working. Things are, we're coming out of this crisis and everything's okay. However, the things that are affecting Canadians' daily lives, they're really feeling that. So that gives the opportunity for, you know, the opposition, for the Conservatives, for the NDP especially, to really be pushing at them to say, no, you have to do more, you have to do better, or else we're going to come in and take your lunch. So for the you know, cap members of cabinet who are, you know, gathering for this retreat, that planning session is not only the, the short term of, you know, how do we fix things right now and to help people feel as though as their government, we are doing something to help them, but they also have to play the long game because, you know, these aren't things, you have to make sure that things aren't going to get worse if you try to fix things in the interim. Well, also the long game, Joyce, is whether or not there might be an election, right? Like, are, are, do you think that's part of the discussion, part of the calculation when they're talking politics? Well, that's that always going to be part of their discussion. You, they, you, know, you know, they all tell us, oh, we, we're ready anytime we're ready. <laughs> uh, I don't think any of them are ready and I don't think Canadians are ready. And that's very important. Um, and, and maybe Nick could tell us how much Canadians would enjoy being in, into another election when all those things that you just said are there. Yeah. So healthcare, no easy fix. Uh, inflation, no easy fix. We're going to know from the Bank of Canada. Affordability, no easy fix. And this is the government that's that that that's governing. It's the Liberals, so they're going to be blamed for it. But at least healthcare seems there seems to be some. You know, there, there seems to be some progress on health care. The only problem is the Liberals married the NDP. It's a political marriage, but we've we all married, I think. We know the big word is the C word. Charles the compromise. Lucky one. No, I'm just, okay, right? So, but compromise is the word. Right. And what the NDP is demanding of the Liberals, you know, aside from fixing the health care, which they've already told us is billions of dollars, right. is pharmacare. Other billions of dollars and you've got the Lots governor of, of the Bank of Canada is going to lose his mind if this government keeps spending like that. So what do they do? So they're in a bit of a pickle, I think, and they're going to talk about that pickle a lot. And, uh, you know, how do you fix any of these things and come out of it looking like the government that is ready to face, right, the new session? Or yeah. are you just a tired government with a, you know, prime minister, is he running out of steam like his, uh, you know, New Zealand counterpart? Is that, is that going on? So there's a whole bunch of things that I'll be looking at. Okay, and we'll all be watching. Thanks very much. Joyce Napier, Sherelle Evelyn, and Nick Nanos. Appreciate your time. Before we go today, three things I'm watching for this week. First, as we've been talking about, the federal cabinet retreat gets underway in Hamilton tomorrow. I'm watching to see how the Liberals frame their political and policy agenda ahead of the next federal budget. I'm also watching for the Bank of Canada's interest rate announcement Wednesday. Will it be a hike? And if so, how big of one? And could it be the last one? Finally, Thursday is the day the Transport Committee reconvenes to continue their probe of holiday travel chaos. Via Rail will be on the hot seat and MPs will hear from passengers who went through it all. I'll have my eyes on that. That does it for question period today. I'm Vashi Capellos. Have a great day and I'll see you on Power Play tomorrow.